So the NACA score is a scoring system that was initially developed in the United States in like the 1950s. And the power of UVA, UVB um, energies helped to disinfect. Stop peeing on people. It does not work. We count the, the dots that are on this plate. Hello, welcome to the March 2023 edition of the Wilderness Medicine Podcast with Daryl. But sometimes he goes by Dario, and he may be funny, but he is no Joe Rogan. Hey, hey, it was great to see many of you in Tahoe for the WMS Winter Conference. It was the first time for me since a pandemic to meet in person, and hopefully next month I'm going to be highlighting some of the talks. We had some great talks, and we also had some great snow, but... Because this podcast is going to go over that magic hour, I'm going to hold off for now. But today, I'm going to give you a little case of the month, or the three months, or whatever we call it. And then we're going to talk March journal articles. We're going to discuss high-altitude solar water disinfection, mountain rescue in British Columbia, and a fun review of marine medicine, because it's almost time to think of water. But I'm not so sure that it's time to warm up yet, since... We still have snow here in the 505, a name for New Mexico, and we're still waiting for that continental mountain snowpack to stabilize. But first, here's an interesting case salient for the weather and how wilderness medicine principles could sometimes be applied to even a tertiary, not a critical access, but a tertiary hospital. This is very interesting. Écoutez, s'il vous plaît. So it was about last week, the end of February, we had a 20-ish-year-old woman, unconscious, found alone in her car here in Albuquerque during a winter cold spell. Fire rescue extricates her. She was found to be pulseless, unknown downtime. The patient was found to be in persistent ventricular fibrillation, and EMS would give her eight defibrillation attempts as well as multiple doses of intraosseous epinephrine and mechanical CPR. By the way, blood glucose, normal. Narcan, no help. As many of you astute folks do know, defibrillating a cold heart and giving epinephrine probably isn't going to work, but she arrives to our resuscitation room. She's got a superglottic airway. The Lucas Mechanical CPR device is giving really good compression with pulses, and you might have guessed it, she was very hypothermic. She's got these two IO catheters. Our nurses were having trouble getting an IV, so... The monitor reveals persistent ventricular fibrillation despite another 200 joules of defibrillation initiated by the nurse. And I'm like, whoa, 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 wait a minute, she's cold. We found her to have a tympanic temperature of 21 degrees. Not so accurate, but we had a really good suspicion for severe hypothermia. And of course, we're looking to get a better core temperature, but we'll describe those problems in a bit. So we continue, good CPR. The nurse races around to find a multiple lumen bladder foley with a temperature probe in hopes of not only irrigating the bladder with warm saline, but also to hook up the temperature probe to something called an arctic sun, which I will talk about. But due to many challenges, we couldn't get that foley in. And a nice surprise was, as we usually undress these patients to see what's going on, a bunch of fentanyl pills are found around the introitus. Well, anyways, let's not belabor that. eCPR was on my mind. Doing good mechanical CPR and getting ECMO ready. Warm her up. Other than an unknown downtime, I thought VA ECMO would be a good option. You bypass the heart, you bypass the lungs entirely. And 
I called for the cannulation team. Now, honestly, I would have loved to have cannulated, but I am still a little bit early in my ECMO training. So I said, no, 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 not going to do it. Well, the V-fib would likely persist unless, of course, we did rewarm her. Well, we place warming lights on her. Es muy, muy bueno. And then we tried to apply extremity and trunk gel warm wraps that work on this device I alluded to called the Arctic Sun, normally used for therapeutic hypothermia, but we've also used it to warm patients up. But again, we were having problems with the Foley, so we couldn't couple the device to the Foley, and so it renders this device inoperable. And then soon after, the cannulation team ended up sterilizing and preparing the groins for ECMO cannulation, limiting further Foley access for troubleshooting. And for some weird reason, the only esophageal temp probes were in the OR upstairs. Wow. So I thought, okay, let's go back to the 90s. Should I do it or should I not? Peritoneal lavage? Chest tubes? These would be problematic given the access issues. So the mechanical CPR was doing fine, and we also ended up doing an endotracheal intubation, but how to rewarm? Wow, bear hugger isn't practical. Maybe we had to improvise. We didn't have any other options. So fortunately, housekeeping gave us those nice, clear plastic trash bags that I have in my survival kit for transpiration bags, and we quickly filled those bags up with hot water, placing one around the top of her head, the upper chest, and the lower chest around that Lucas device. And this was a la Dr. Giesbrecht, who I interviewed in March 2019, discussing the efficacy of head and neck rewarming, which was about rewarming the head and neck if CPR is being done. All right, thank MacGyver, thank, thank. Finally, after about 20 minutes of this so-called baggy rewarming, we finally got the esophageal temp probe and insert it, and we got a temperature of 26.3 degrees. Unfortunately, the ECMO cannulators were still having problems. And then we get this page that another cardiac arrest would be arriving in 15 minutes. Tense, pucker, times. So we thought, well, let's give it a shot. We defibrillated again, but we used a unique technique called the double sequential defibrillation technique described in the New England Journal of Medicine by Chesky's in 2022. This is used in persistent V-fib, or what we would call V-fib storm. What you basically do is you put a pair of defibrillator pads anterior and lateral to the chest, and then you put another set of pads anterior and posteriorly without those pads touching each other. Now, you need two defibrillators, and as you deliver 200 joules from one defibrillator, you simultaneously do likewise with the other set. Now, according to this study, listen up. The primary outcome to hospital discharge in this study was 13% in the standard DFib group, one pair of paddles. But with the dual sequence technique, 30% survived to hospital discharge with a number needed to treat of six. And the dual sequence group had good neuro outcomes as well. I won't have time to get further into this, but we'll leave the information in the show notes. The patient already had a pad in front and on her back, the anteroposterior position. But the big problem with all this stuff was getting another set of pads anterolaterally. So we said, let's use defibrillator paddles instead. Yes, let's go back to the 90s. Plus, 
we couldn't zap simultaneously because there was a provider who would have to hold those paddles. So we yelled cleared, we defibrillated with the pads, then immediately after discharged the paddles. No change. Interestingly, her antidal CO2 would climb to 20, and she inched towards 27 degrees. By the way, an antidal CO2 value less than 10, prognostically poor. And for those of you who love the Pope score, well, her potassium, 4.3. This was not an asphyxia mechanism, and our CPR was going on for 30 minutes. So we calculated her hope survival probability 93%. We were rewarming her and continued to do so. A little while later, we gave another try at the dual sequential defibrillation, as I described, adding esmolol as a bolus, 500 micrograms and 100 micrograms an hour after having established that peripheral IV. Another dual defib, esmolol, zap, zap. We got sinus bradycardia with a good arterial line waveform after some episodes of PEA and she finally got a mean arterial pressure of 45. Boy, this was puckering. But hold your horses. Well, hold the horses. What's up with that Esmol? There's two small studies. Not that well done, but they were done in the past nine years. Esmol was used as an adjunct for dual sequential defibrillation. In other words, Esmol could have a synergistic effect with persistent V-fib. Would it work on a cold heart? No idea. We equivocated, but... Our team decided that, well, we'll keep rewarming. Now we finally had the Arctic sun hooked up to the esophageal probe. And as she was nearing 28 degrees, we gave the Esmol a try. It was a quick on-off intervention owing to its short half-life. And lo and behold, she would end up with a sinus bradycardia. Using our ultrasound probe, she was refusing. The heart was beating, but not very good. Then she would end up in PEA, then asystole, we're doing the whole rigmarole, more CPR, a dose of epi. Wow, this was crazy. But finally, after she had this low arterial line blood pressure, the mean arterial pressure, we stopped the esmolol and we put her on multiple pressors, nor epi and epi drips, as the antidal CO2 rose to 25. Not too shabby. We finally got her cannulated and ECMO was already started. So... The interesting thing was her pupils were mid-sized. They were non-reactive, but she began to move purposefully even before the ECMO. While we were still performing CPR on this cold individual, she got rewarmed, and I ended up visiting her two days later to find that she was neurologically intact. Well, what does this have to do with WM? Oh, great save. Well, listen, defibrillating patients that are too cold tends not to work well. Should I have waited until we warmed her to 28 degrees? Probably, but we were a bit anxious to get a perfusing rhythm because we had another cardiac arrest coming in at 80 any, any minute, but we did succeed, even though she was just under 28 degrees. Now, I don't have any idea. Dual sequence defibrillation works in hypothermia, and if we were in an out-of-hospital environment, I might have just done CPR or intermittent CPR. You can look up the WMS hypothermia guidelines because they're really good. But for the resuscitationist, keep dual sequence defibrillation in your mind if the usual attempts at defibrillation don't work and hopefully the patient is warm. Plus, I can't comment on the efficacy of esmolol in this case either. No idea. Lastly, 
we did have equipment issues with the temperature probes, and we ultimately resorted to unconventional means, aka improvised means, to rewarm the patient. But she got a good antidal CO2, and ultimately would have pretty good wall motion on ultrasound. Good art line. ECMO was finally started. And you know what? These two interventions, good CPR and defibrillation, do help in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest with regard to survival. We had equipment issues with the temperature probes, and we resorted to improvising the warming-up phase. She had good entitled CO2, and we had fairly good wall motion on ultrasound and good art line readings. Well, things seemed to work. What improved survival and out-of-hospital cardiac arrest? Good CPR, timely defibrillations, and for this special case, rewarming. Now, it's virtually impossible, on the other hand, to rewarm somebody like this, this sick in the field, but we had to put on that austere medicine hat. We had to think outside the box, and in the end, yeah, we made a good save. By the way, tox panel was only positive for benzos, but keep in mind that routine lab assays are likely to miss many synthetic opioids. Okay, let's go. Austere medicine entails improvising often, often improvising a splint, other medical devices when conventional medicine isn't available. But with regard to international public health, it is replete with examples of improvisation. For instance, when the conventional means of ensuring the health of a population is limited, this is when international public health comes into view. One problem worldwide is the availability of clean, potable water to reduce illness, and that can be a problem after a natural disaster, for instance. And how could we provide safe drinking water to a group, or even to ourselves, on an outing? The potable water isn't always immediately available, and for whatever reason, perhaps, boiling, chemical treatment, or water filtration is not possible. Well, we're going to discuss a very interesting original research article in the journal this month, March. With me here are doctors Kylie Van Heusen and William Mundo to discuss the evaluation of E. coli inactivation at high altitudes using solar water disinfection. Hello, thanks for having us. Hello, yeah, thank you for having us. Happy to be here. Well, great article and interesting. And it's really important for those involved in wilderness medicine, humanitarian disaster relief, expedition medicine, and so on and so forth. But wait, what is solar water disinfection? And why is it so important? How does it work? And what good is it? Yeah, I can uh, take on the first question. Uh, so solar water disinfection is a method of micro, basically microbe inactivation using the power of the sun. And it actually kind of goes back in some history to thousands of years ago. They believed that, um, I think it started in, um, I think it was Egypt, and they wanted to, uh, they believed in the power of the sun in inactivating um, pathogens within water. And so, but it wasn't studied until kind of the early 1800s. But basically it started kind of, as you said, in these more um, austere environments, especially in the kind of international health field where, we don't have access necessarily to boiling, chlorination, or filtration for other methods, and instead can use plastic water bottles to um, collect and purify water or disinfect water. And so the method is known as SOTUS. 
been around about 30 years now. And basically you fill plastic water bottles, let them uh, sit in the sun and the power of UVA, UVB um, energies help to disinfect the water. And so the protocol right now is that it's suggested to have the water be in the sunlight for at least six hours. And then after that, it is safe to drink. So for the wilderness environment, uh, the WMS actually has done kind of guidelines on this and they recommend that they have a 1B recommendation for full sunlight exposure in the clear plastic water bottles to significantly reduce the microorganism contamination. And kind of to the point you're making why, you know, sodas or solar water, one, it's it's easy, um, it's user-friendly, you just need the the plastic water bottles and it's cheap. It's the cheapest method, method there is. They estimate 63 cents per person per year versus like filtrations around $3. So not, I mean, not a major change, but still it's one of the cheapest methods. So that's was kind of our idea behind it. It's, it's very, very easy, applicable, and then can apply to international health, to wilderness medicine. And so that was our goal with, uh, with using this method. Okay, I got to ask, have you ever tried this sort of water? I actually have not. <laughs> I have not. Uh, I was pretty close to it one time, though, when I was in Peru. But luckily, uh, we were able to find, um, uh, make it back to the to the village where they had some clean water. But it was uh, very, I was very desperate at that point, And I, I thought about it. <laughs> you know, knock on wood, I have to say. So I was in the Philippines a couple of years ago after one of the typhoons doing some disaster relief. And I actually tried it. And guess what? I didn't get sick. So I'm you know, definitely a believer in it. I think it's a, a great idea to do with the, and, and I just want to uh, talk to the listeners. So Kylie talks about a 1B. That's, there's some evidence grades uh, in medicine that we go by. And the idea of 1B means it's pretty legit as far as the strength of the evidence there that backs up the fact that this thing really does work so does in this example so i just wanted to mention that so what did you all demonstrate in the study then and why on earth did you go up to 3300 meters up to high altitude what did that prove yeah no that's a really great question um, and that's actually part of the reason why we wanted to do this project specifically and so like you said, uh, SOTUS has been uh, established already, and it's actually backed up by the Wilderness Medical Society and the uh, World Health Organization in terms of a method to be able to use to safely decontaminate water uh, and, and create safe drinking water in areas where people may not have the means to do it. And one of the limitations, though, that we notice in, in preparing for this research is that it's only that it's only been studied at a certain geographical region, specifically like uh, only between uh, 40 degrees uh, north and 40 degrees south in terms of longitude. And so the, the idea is that cl the closer it is to the equator, that the more effective it's going to be, right? Because there's more direct sunlight that hits the, the water. Uh, however, it wasn't studied outside of these parameters. And so what we decided to do is we decided to design a study that is able to, to evaluate the effectiveness of sodas outside of those parameters. But instead of, um, you know, the variable that we decided to, to manipulate was altitude. And so the idea is the higher you go 
in altitude, the more um, the more the stronger UV radiation that you have. And so, although we're not within these specific parameters, we said although you're not within these specific parameters, you can go outside these parameters if you're at higher altitude. And based on the study, we were able to prove that. And so, what we did is we conducted a experimental study where we essentially had uh, controls and uh, bottles that were exposed, and we used different types of containers that you may have in the environmental setting. And so we had water bottles, we had plastic bottles, and even we had plastic bags as well. And essentially what we did is we inoculated these uh, these containers with E. coli uh, that was grown in the, in the lab. And essentially we exposed it at uh, the sun at high altitude. And the two uh, areas that we exposed that was here in, in Denver, which is about 2,500 feet. And the other one is at, like you said, at, uh, above 3,000 feet. Un error, lo siento. What he wanted to say was Denver's at 2,500 meters and they went beyond 3,000 meters, not feet. Okay, vámonos. And the idea was that we can have two separate data points in terms of if there's any difference of the higher you go in altitude, the more effective that the disinfection will be. And so what we found was that, just to kind of briefly say, is that we found that SOTUS inactivation is actually effective at high altitude just as effective it is at low altitude. And one of the other things that we found that kind of supported our, our hypothesis was that uh, within the first two hours, we saw that there was uh, faster inactivation at the higher altitude compared to the lower altitude. But at the end of the six hours, we there was no difference. And so by the end of the, essentially what that means is that by the end of the six hours, it doesn't matter if you're at high altitude or lower altitude, it's still going to work. But we did find some evidence to suggest that it may be a little bit more effective at higher altitude because it uh, it was quicker to disinfect uh, the the bacteria in the water. And then surprisingly, too, the other thing that was kind of interesting that we found was that plastic water bottles are actually more effective than Nalgene water bottles. And so I know a lot of times when we go out hiking and stuff like that, we tend to carry our Nalgene bottles. But we actually found that in plastic water bottles that there was a 1.4 log like fold ink. Uh, uh, greater increase in disinfection compared to, to Nalgene water bottles. And so that was kind of interesting. Those Nalgene water bottles were clear. They weren't tinted or anything like that. Yeah, they were, they were, they were clear water bottles. And in the paper, we actually uh, describe some of the mechanisms of why we think that that may be it. And it has to do with the, the plastics that, that are used to manufacture these water bottles. And so we definitely take a deeper dive in there, but that was one of the interesting findings that, that we were able to find in terms of the different types of containers. There was no difference between the plastic bottles and plastic uh, bags in terms of the effectiveness of it. And so if you were to use a plastic bag or a plastic uh, water bottle, it would, it would be the same. So initially started at 1,600 meters, Denver, Albuquerque. Well, we are, I have to say, the other mile high city, the Burke. At any rate, it sounds like the SOTUS, Solar Disinfection Studies, put out by the World Health Organization, studied this technique at 1,600 meters and no more. And your group went up to 3,000 meters, a little bit beyond, over in Leadville, and then you went higher up to Mount Evans, which is 33, 29 meters, right? Yeah, I don't know the, the exact uh, altitude, but it, it is slightly a little bit higher because we were closer uh, to, to the tree line. Well, too bad you didn't get to the top of Mount Evans. So, while higher altitude means higher ultraviolet exposure, it didn't seem that the water temperature made much of a difference. And we might think 
that water in a closed container would bring up the temperature and the ultraviolet and temperature would have worked synergistically to kill those pesky bacteria. But the temperature increases were negligible in this study, and this is just an observation, but what happened? Yeah, this is a great question, and it has been shown that temperature can act um, synergistically with SOTUS, but in the research kind of that's been done, the temperature ranges are kind of specific, so it is shown, especially when temperatures exceed 45 Celsius, which is 113 Fahrenheit, that that synergistic effect does um, basically increase the killing of microbes. And then interestingly, there was a study actually in last year that came out where they uh, conducted SOTUS in Finland and found the opposite to be true as well with temperatures below 10 degrees Celsius um, or around 50 degrees Fahrenheit that there also was a synergistic effect. So it kind of seems that it's on both sides of the temperature spectrum, which wasn't known really before this finished study. Um, but that being said, the water temperature that we collected was within these ranges. And so we never really either were below the 50 degrees Fahrenheit or above the 113. And that's why we suspect that um, there really wasn't a significant difference. And then in different literature, and us two can kind of you know speculate how then can we you know, utilize temperature and enhance temperature changes to uh, help with the SOTUS method. And so sometimes different kind of, for example, we could use, you know, the solar um, like reflectors. Sometimes that can help with temperature in which we did in this study um, or other methods of increasing temperature. But that's likely why we didn't see the effect. And I uh, think as an observation, that's really interesting because other studies have shown that the temperature does, does play a role. Wow, I would not imagine that cold temperatures and ultraviolet would be effective. I'll have to look at that study from Finland. But let's discuss the idea of logarithmic or log decreases. Um, for those who might not know, what is meant by logarithmic decreases and why should we measure log decreases? Yeah, that's also another great question. And I actually had to do a little bit of math review as well as I uh, jumped into this project. But essentially, like, like the mathematical definition of a logarithm is essentially like the power to which a number must be raised to in order to get that other number. So for example, um, let's say uh, 10 to, to, to get a 100, you need 10 to the 2, right? And so technically that's a log of 2. And essentially the reason why we, we use that is because in the field of microbiology, we're dealing with organisms that are so tiny and so uh, a lot of them and the way that they replicate is in an exponential manner. And so log logarithmic math is used whenever you're evaluating anything that either increases or decreases at an exponential rate. And in the microbiology world, we use uh, the unit of colony forming units. And essentially those are little uh, colonies that are formed from bacteria once they are able to reproduce. And essentially the idea is that like one bacteria is going to turn into two bacteria, two bacteria going to turn into four bacteria, and so and so on and so forth. And so when we talk about uh, logarithmic decreases, essentially we're using the standard convention to talk about uh, decreases in bacteria concentration. And per the World Health Organization, they also use this convention as well, and they use a recommendation of six, uh, four to six hours and to decrease uh, at least by uh, four, four to six logs. And so essentially what we did, we were just, just replicating that and using that standard convention in order to 
evaluate our the effectiveness. And it's also a good way to kind of conceptualize the idea that that micro that bacteria are micro microbiological organisms that increase or decrease at an exponential rate. Yeah, right. So like 10 to the 2 or 10 to the power of 2 is going to be 100 and to the power of 3 has three zeros. It's 1000. So you go up to by tens, hundreds, thousands until you arrive at 10 to the 6th. These bacteria replicate so ridiculously much that counting, oh, let's see, 1, 2, 3, no, 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 no. Counting by the thousands or millions is much more efficient, and with the exponential growth or death, logarithms are much more efficient. And it helps. It also helps a lot, too, when we're doing the statistical analysis because they're pretty big numbers, right? And it, it can make the, the number crunching a lot more easier when we're able to simplify it to a logarithmic scale. It's just much more easier to understand. And also like when you graph it as well, it makes a lot more sense rather than having a, a very big like decrease, as you can see, like when you see a logarithmic graph, it's more of a linear relationship. And that's exactly what we were trying to show in our in our study. All right. I'm going to put in just a quick question. And I know the answer learning from my days in a microbiology lab, but let us chat, shall we? So um, when you're measuring these bacteria, are you looking through a microscope and counting those little buggers again? Here we go. One, two, three, four, five. Or are you using a special plate that permits growth like a Petri dish? And do you just kind of let that bacteria grow? You throw in the Petri dish in a nice warming oven and presto, blobs of bacteria appear. How do you guys measure the bacteria? If it had a mind, you could reason with it. If it had a body, you could shoot it. The organism is growing at a geometric rate. By all accounts, it's at least a thousand times its original mass. The blob has no shape. Yeah, so we so essentially it's kind of it's pretty tedious. And so Kylie and I spent a lot of time in, in the lab counting these bacteria. But essentially what we do is we will we grab the sample from the the water and it's, and essentially we like we even had to dilute it a little bit because uh the concentration was still pretty significant. Um and, and then we use some some division to kind of be able to have the the exact number of what is in the water bottle. But essentially we use these little plates where we essentially drop the water, the contaminated water in there, and we do put it in an oven with and the plate has some nutrients in it that help the bacteria grow. And essentially we put them in a little like uh, we started we store them and then we just let it grow for about 24 hours. And the next day we come back and you could see the little dots that are there. And essentially you're just counting all of the dots in the in the plate. And so takes a quite a bit of time to, to do, but that's exactly what we do is we count the, the dots that are on this plate. And it's essentially each of those dots are thought to be a colony forming unit. So it appeared that sunlight exposure decreased the E. coli to essentially zero, zero colony forming units. And that's a microbiological standard to measure growth or death of bacteria. But did the study demonstrate that SOTUS is bactericidal? killing the bacteria, or did it just simply render the bacteria unable to further multiply, in other words, bacteria static? This is a great question, too, and something I had to kind of investigate a little bit further. But as kind of what we're talking about the colony-forming units, and it did, it went down to zero. In the term of bacteriostatic versus bactericidal, something we often think about, like with antibiotic mechanisms. Um, and so in terms of SOTUS, the way that it works is with the 
the UVA and UVB uh, radiation. And so kind of to put it general, like generally, there's definitely a lot of more kind of scientific um, background to this, but the UVA is thought to damage the microorganism through reactive oxygen species, while the UVB causes damage directly to the RNA and DNA. And so that being said, the enzymes then responsible kind of for unwinding and copying DNA are not able to function um, due to this damage. And so that decreases the ability for them to replicate. So if you kind of think through it that way, then it's more of the bacterial static where they're just not able to multiply versus like truly killing the bacteria. But there's some different, one paper I read, so yeah, bacterial static, that's likely the effect rather than being purely bactericidal. And I think that kind of then goes to the question of, you know, will the bacteria regrow? And the suggestion is to drink the water within 24 hours because there is that possibility. And whether it's that there's some bacteria that were still, you know, alive that then were able to reproduce or that, that maybe there's this kind of ability for the bacteria to kind of start to like regrow again. So Will, if you have any other thoughts on bacterial or static, I, I think it's more of the static effect with the UV damage to the DNA. Yeah, definitely. I think I think it's a little bit of both for sure, because uh, I think the it does it raises the temperature enough that it even like disrupts the the sometimes like the wall of this of the cell membrane as well. And in those instances, it can be bacterial but the the mechanism how Kylie described is exactly essentially it damages the DNA and therefore is unable to replicate. And so it's more of a, more on the bacterial uh, static side. Right, but it won't replicate. And is that bacteria in and of itself that has damaged DNA and RNA, is that rendered basically non-toxic, uh, non-virulent? Yeah, exactly. So it's it's that idea is like purifying. So it's technically not sterile water, but it is disinfected. And it also depends on the organism, right? Because there's some bacteria that, you know, this the bacteria itself is toxic, but there are also some bacteria that are that produce a, a toxin, right? And so really the idea is to be able to when the bacteria becomes bacteriostatic, it's unable to produce that toxin. And so therefore, it's, it, that's why it's, it, it could be safe. But it, it really depends on, on the organism that we're talking about. That's a good point when you talk about the enterotoxins. But the study was nice and simple. You didn't look at any other bacteria. You didn't examine other viruses or protozoa. So it's a good model what you did. And perhaps that answers this next question. Well, let's say I took some plastic bottles with water that I pre-filtered because I know pre-filtering is uh, important. And if you have particulate matter in your water before using sodas, chemical disinfection, or another technique, we know that bacteria is going to hide around those nooks and crannies of these particles and not get irradiated. But let's say I pre-filter my water. I let that water out in the high-altitude sun for the whole day. Could I take some of that water that I set out in the sun that day in my plastic bottle that I didn't drink at all in order to save some of that water the next morning so I can be able to drink a nice swig? Am I safe doing this without having to go through the solar disinfection technique that next day that we've already talked about? I mean, why not just chug that water and wake up in the morning? Well, that's a good question. And so it, it kind of goes back to that last concept that we talked about, right? And so it, it does, technically it does 
cause the bacteria to become bacteriostatic, but it only lowers it to a certain concentration that it's not toxic. And so there's still, you know, it doesn't de deactivate the all the bacteria entirely. And so the theory is that there's still a tiny bit of a concentration of bacteria that's present, not enough to get you sick, but at enough level for it to begin to replicate ag again. And so when we talk about the logarithmic increases and, you know, by by the next, you know, couple of days, it'll probably the concentration will probably raise up again to the point that it wouldn't be safe to drink. And so the recommendation is that you, after you deactivate or de, yeah, once you deactivate the bacteria that you use it as to drink sooner rather than later, I don't know the, I don't know the exact time Kylie, you may know, but the idea is that you don't wait because it could still potentially, you know, grow back. Yeah. One recommendation I, I found was 24 hours was kind of the limit. And then other studies showed that there's nothing observed after 48 hours and even some up to the five days. But again, it is kind of depending on the organism and kind of other factors. So I think there, the 24 hours is kind of just like a standard that is recommended. Again, though, well, I think like the sooner rather than later in terms of being able to, to drink the water. So let's talk about the setup a little bit. So what you did is you had the Ziploc bags or whatever you use, clear plastic bags. And you had the scrunchy, crunchy plastic water bottles that we, you know, might buy in a store or something like that. Then you also use Nalgene bottles. And what you did is you actually put a solar reflector underneath the water-filled bottles. Uh, could be aluminum foil. It could be a reflective tarp, something like that. And then you expose to the direct sun. Keeping in mind that, well, a cloudy day isn't going to really give you the UV that you need. So, it's got to be pretty much a clear day. And so anyways, I thought, well, it was a nice setup, which you all did. But do you need the solar reflector underneath that water bottle? Couldn't you do without it and just throw the plastic bottles and the Ziplocs on a dirt field and be good with that? You might not know, but I think this was the way that the WHO set it up using a reflector normally. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And so it actually, um, it's standard to do it that way, right? You can you can do it without it. Uh, it'll just take more time. And that also is the same with a cloudy day. And so rather than having it out there for six hours, you may have to have it there all day, anywhere between eight to 10 hours. And that goes the same with the reflector. And so like you said, the idea really is that the, the sun rays will go through the water go past through the water bottle, hit the reflector, and then reflect back up. And so essentially it's getting like two doses. And so that's why usually what they recommend is to use the four to six hours. But if you don't have that, or if it's a cloudy day, they do recommend uh, longer, like anywhere between eight to 10 hours. I did want to bring up one quick point uh, about SOTUS. And so is that, so SOTUS has actually also been used to study uh, disinfection of protozoa it's been used to study the disinfection of viruses. Um, and so there is a, a good amount of literature out there that shows that it's you know pretty effective at disinfecting a lot of microorganisms. Um, I think the, the reason why it's not a 100% full recommendation yet is because there isn't that many studies uh, involving human subjects yet. Um, and I think that's really kind of the next step where, where you know things hopefully are gonna be moving towards is that we actually start to study the, the the incidence or the prevalence of certain gastrointestinal diseases from from drinking unsafe water, 
and comparing that to communities who do use this method. And so I think that's kind of something to think about for all the you know, researchers out there, all the scholars who are interested in SOTUS, that that's really where a lot of this work needs to move towards. And so I just kind of encourage everybody to, to keep that in mind as they, you know, put together their research proposals and, and think about how they want to be involved with the SOTUS literature. Listen to me. So there you have it with Kylie and Will, SOTUS Water Disinfection. Please read the article. And now we'll move on. Or as they say, moving right along, the big question is, who is they? Timmy's and hockey, syrup and bacon, Molson and Mounties, Petrocan stations, throwing on some cheese and gravy on top of our fries. That's a poutine. And we wear our plaid sweaters when we walk amongst the northern lights. We read through a good number of submissions to the journal that deal with search and rescue. They might tout certain strengths of their group or of their call volume, but there's an interesting volunteer SAR group out of Canada, specifically out of Vancouver, hope I said that right, Vancouver, in its environs called the North Shore Rescue Group. And I, I wanted to briefly discuss the paper in this March journal titled Epidemiology of Emergency Medical Search and Rescue in the North Shore Mountains of Vancouver, Canada from 1995 to 2020 with our lead author, Dr. Dylan Collins. Great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to be here. One of the reasons that this article picked my interest was that your SAR group services a rugged mountainous area close to a major metro area of Vancouver. And I bet this group not only has call-outs for experienced backcountry users, but also for the city folks that are otherwise not really savvy not experienced in the backcountry. And this is similar to what we see here locally in Albuquerque, New Mexico. So please tell us about the group and how many call-outs a year that are done on average. So like you said, Vancouver is one of the largest metropolitan centers in Canada. We're on the West Coast. And the city is right up against the coastal mountains of British Columbia. We call that the North Shore and the North Shore Mountains. For example, there's three in the North Shore, three mountain ski resorts. So I'm pretty lucky 30 minutes out of my door, I have three mountains to ski from. But those environments also include huge backcountry environments, extremely accessible for experienced mountaineers and skiers and backcountry enthusiasts, and for people who are going on their first hike ever. So it's interesting, we have a lot of tourism, a lot of people, a big population close to some extreme wilderness environments with pretty easy access. So North Shore Rescue is a search and rescue volunteer-run organization. It's been running for over 50 years. There's over 40 members, and they provide search and rescue services predominantly to the North Shore Mountains. Occasionally, they're called to assist in other jurisdictions in British Columbia, but that's the main field that they work in. It's a very busy organization. Historically, and in the study that we did over that time frame, averaging about 130 calls of various durations, some last days, some last hours. Anecdotally, over the last few years, and certainly since COVID, the call volume has gone way up. What we found was about 40% of our calls are medical. So although I'm not a search and rescue member myself, I'm a resident emergency physician here in Vancouver, uh, I'm involved with the organization in a research capacity, along with my co-authors, many of whom are both medical professionals and members of the search and rescue organization. I'm right now, I'm looking at the requirements 
to become a member on the North Shore SAR Group webpage. And I'm like, wow. I mean, it's first of all, it's an excellent webpage. There seems to be a huge commitment for volunteers. There's something like over 400 hours a year you volunteer. You have to participate in 80% of the activities and you have to stay on for five years. Wow. It, I wonder if members need to be really well off financially, but if they work, I mean, okay, are some of these people retired? You kind of wonder independently wealthy. Uh, they have a hedge fund, but if they do work, it must be difficult for these employers, except the fact that a person might show up later, not at all for work, no? Yeah, you raise a good point for sure. And I and I think, although I'm not best situated to talk about it, there is an equity lens, for example, and who can participate in search and rescue and those sorts of things. But in general, the members of the organization are extremely generous with their time and commitment. So these are people who are training for sometimes 10 hours a week, who are committing to five plus years and are extremely dedicated. And so the way that our search and rescue is organized in British Columbia, for example, it's all, all covered by volunteer search and run, search and rescue organizations who receive provincial funding. So it's all this culture of volunteer for sure. So it's a big commitment. You know, some of our members are retired professionals, some work part time, some are shift workers, lots have families, some are working full time. But together as a team, they're able to put together a schedule that provides coverage and, and full commitment to training. Basically, with our local search and rescue groups, we have a good amount of call outs. But to defer the cost of our operations, a lot of our groups, except for our university group, but a lot of our volunteer search and rescue groups, they have to raise money. They depend on donations. With this many call-outs, how does the province, BC, help defer some of the costs of operation, especially for the North Shore Mountain Rescue Group? Yeah, so our team, the North Shore Search and Rescue team and how ground search and rescue works is that they're not activated directly by the public. So for example, the, our ambulance service, BC Ambulance Services, or the Royal Canadian Mountain Police, um, or emergency management centers will activate a ground search and rescue uh, organization like North Shore Rescue and, and ask for their help in a call out. So in that structure, they get funding directly from the province. That, that funding, although we likely need more as demand is going up and up and up, and the need for more technology like night vision goggles on aircraft and those sorts of things goes up. A large amount of the funding does come from the government. But we have extremely dedicated and talented people fundraising for all sorts of things and uh, a strong, I would say, community commitment to the organization. A lot of people benefit and see the benefit here in Vancouver of having the search and rescue organization and love going to the backcountry and having that safety net. So I would say that our community is also very dedicated and they contribute a lot in terms of donations. Uh, in kind and otherwise, so organization that help with training and all sorts of things. Well, in the paper, you discuss the need for foundation mountain emergency medicine. Does everyone have a high level of medical training beyond basic first aid, you know, such as physicians or paramedics? So we talk uh, in this paper, and we mentioned a little bit about the advanced medical provider program. So more recently, what has happened is uh, a, a team with uh, medical expertise, a subset of the team have been assembled to be available on clearly medical calls or high acuity calls. 
So this subset of the team are people who in their other professional roles have medical training. So most of those are emergency physicians. So there's some intensivists, for example, uh, um, a registered nurse with specialty in emergency medicine. So the team of them are are predominant, they have high level of training. But other than that, the team members don't have a ton of medical training. They have basic CPR and first aid and avalanche, and they go through a lot of simulation and training programs, which of course can respond to the, the needs of the medical calls that we're seeing. But overall, we have a small subset of people uh, who have this advanced medical training. It's a really good description of that 25-year call-out experience. And you basically looked at these calls retrospectively, which you probably have to do in this sort of uh, type of situation. And the calls were categorized being medical, they're being categorized as being traumatic or other. And you used something interesting, the score that maybe many people don't know about. It's called a NACA score, National Advisory Committee of Aeronautics Severity Score for Cases. What, what is a NACA score and why should we bother to use it in search and rescue? Yeah, that's right. So we did. We looked 25 years back in time. And just to add some light into or a little bit behind the actual paper itself, you know, these are paper records in storage that our team sat down over a course of several years and went record by record, reading them by hand, extracting data, classifying them and those sorts of things. And one of the things we had to figure out was how do we grade the severity of illness with the information that we have in a pre-hospital setting? So the NACA score is a scoring system that was initially developed in the United States in like the 1950s. It's a simple and rapid way. It helps you characterize injury severity, and it was first used for aviation um, crashes and sort of mass casualty settings. But it has been validated to correlate well with morbidity and mortality, and it's used quite a bit in the literature and hospital EMS and in Europe for those, for example. So it gave us a standardized framework to try and add some granularity and information to just how sick our subjects were. You know, frankly, I don't know uh, if it is, is the best one that we could have, but I think it was the best one that was available. And it was important to us to use one that existed to help have some comparison between other studies and any future work we do. But I think something to think about in our field in the future is whether we want to come up with our own nest, our uh, scoring system and those sorts of things, because I, I personally would like to see more epidemiological work, some prospective cohorting. And I think we could, you know, talk at another time where our fields could really get into whether we could develop our own, perhaps better scoring system. But very simply, uh, it's helped us mm. compare to other jurisdictions and mm. get some information about how sick our subjects are. That's a great idea. And for the listeners, I'll just go through this NACA score. So you can go from NACA one to six, if you will. Correct me if I'm wrong. Actually, I, you know, I even see a NACA seven. They kind of changed it over the years, but mm -hmm. uh, NACA score of one is, you know, maybe an abrasion, something very easy, treatable. Maybe it's nothing. NACA two could be a finger fracture dislocation, maybe, you know, a strain that would be somewhat debilitating, maybe moderate lacerations, maybe the individual's dehydrated. If you go to three, you might have a larger bone fracture, femur fracture, for instance, um, maybe smoke inhalation that could be potentially life-threatening. And I think that's in the article, this is where 
things start to get really spicy, you go for a NACA score of three or beyond. Mm-hmm. And four is a serious incident. This could be spinal injury, neurological deficit, a severe airway emergency, asthma attack. In the case of a suicidal intention, drug overdose or something like that. When we talk about NACA 5, we talk about something like an MI, uh, something significant like a polytrauma. Then we go on to higher grades of NACA, the NACA 6, which is a cardiac arrest, mm-hmm. death, and so forth. Yeah, that's a good summary. And as mm-hmm. you kind of pointed out there, if you look in the literature, there's some variation in the definitions of the NACA score. And a lot of it from my research, you know, was in German and there's some translation and those sorts of things. So in our paper and for the readers and for our research team, you know, we included a table which um, clarified a little bit about the scoring and how we used it in our paper, which broadly fits with that for sure. But we added, well, we were inspired by some other variations of it, which just sort of adds in some details about whether they're not a physician may be helpful. So you'll see in our, for example, an act of three is that the person likely needs examination by a physician, but probably not hospital admission. And so that three cutoff is important because that's where we think that a physician probably needs to be involved with this case. And at that stage, they may not be very sick, but they do need to see a doctor. And then it only gets, goes up from there. And then seven is lethal injuries. Right. Lethal injuries. So this is interesting. And we were talking about this a little bit beforehand when we were offline. The case is made that the call-outs justify advanced medical providers on scene, physicians, RN. This is similar to more of the European model, the Franco-German model for those who are you know, pre-hospital providers. Now, did the data show, did you find any data, did it show that having such high-level medical providers, like a physician on scene, could have improved the outcome of patients significantly more than having a less medically experienced team transport to the hospital? Mm-hmm. So our data in this study absolutely did not show that, nor were we looking for it, nor could it show that. And the bulk of our data actually was collected before our advanced medical provider program, for example, although those folks were still members of the team. Uh, So, for example, a search and rescue member who happens to be an emergency physician and happens to be on a call can bring those skills to the call. But our data doesn't actually um, attempt to show whether advanced medical providers are improving health outcomes. But I think that is something that I'm personally interested in looking at, for example, even broadly in terms of developing prospective cohorts. So linking our pre-hospital search and rescue events to, for example, our hospital outcome data, our trauma registry services, and those sorts of things. Because it's important, of course, to tailor our pre-hospital programs and our search and rescue things to that, to things that will help improve patient outcomes. But anecdotally, of course, uh, I hear lots, and one can ima- imagine, you know, if you broke your femur in the bad country, how nice and helpful you, it could be to have someone who could give you IV pain medication for the extraction. And it only goes up from there. Cardiac arrests in the backcountry, having people who are very experienced at leading arrests and resuscitations could be quite life-saving. The specifics of that data, though, this study didn't intend to look at. And Dylan, if I could just, you know, ask you based on, you know, your existing knowledge of just EMS in general in BC, specifically in Vancouver, are paramedics allowed to give IV pain medication in certain parts of America, United States, you can. And in some places, 
you may not be able to. We're fairly liberal with our existing offline protocols. Mm-hmm. What, what, what's your experience over there? So in British Columbia, we have a public ambulance service. It's called the British Columbia Ambulance Service. It's a single organization. It provides care for the whole province. Immensely challenging because we have about four or five million people in British Columbia spread over a huge geography. That includes, for example, where I'm from, which is a North Pacific island, a town of 100 people. There's a few family physicians. And in the very small places, um, we have basically uh, emergency medical responders or technicians. And that's the sort of least amount of training. And we go all the way up to critical care paramedics and paramedic specialists. So what they can do in their scope of practice in terms of giving pain medication depends on the level of the paramedic and the jurisdiction they're working in. The basic crews cannot, for example, give IV pain medicines. But as you go up in the tiered system, some of the paramedics can do that. But in general, I would say for the bulk of calls, they cannot give IV pain medicine. There's some work looking into, for example, the use of pre-hospital ketamine and those sorts of things. But in general, no, it's pretty limited. One interesting thing that really caught my attention in the paper, too, was the large percentage of call-outs related to mental illness. Could you divulge on that a little further? And what was meant by parasuicide? Sure, yeah. So I'll start with the parasuicide. That's not a term that we use in our analysis, but when we're comparing to other literature, this is a term that you might see. And certainly uh, a previous, a similar study in the Rocky Mountains, which we're looking at, used that term. So if you look at some of the original definitions of parasuicide, it's basically self-harm that didn't result in death. So people who were suicidal, who tried to hurt themselves but didn't die, sometimes you'll see that parasuicide. So in previous literature in our comparisons, people were sometimes categorized as suicide, parasuicide. So we didn't make that distinction ourselves. But like you said, so what we did was we looked at all the medical calls that met our inclusion criteria, and then we broadly classified them as trauma. I fell and broke my tibia or non-trauma. So of the non-trauma calls, the most frequent, the most common was for mental health crisis of some kind. Um, and that was tied with exposure, which is typically hypothermia related illness. So with the mental illness, you know, our team anecdotally, I heard lots about these common calls, basically of people who are suicidal and going out into the wilderness uh, to try to die. And certainly when we looked at the data, that was the leading cause in this area. So that includes people who um, are having a mental health crisis, but not necessarily suicidal although most of these cases are people who are suicidal, which is kind of an interesting thing, one in terms of how we maybe tailor our public awareness and those sort of things, but on a very practical level, people who are suicidal and go into the wilderness aren't trying to be found. So it adds some difficulty for the search and rescue, perhaps the length to finding them and those sorts of things. So it's kind of a different subset of a population compared to our typical medical call out. What do you think needs to happen next? What are the next steps? What are you going to pursue further? So, I mean, I'm a health services and systems research sort of nerd. So I think that this work is foundational. It's basic. It gives us a really good beginning, but there's a lot that our field uh, should be looking to. I think, first of all, I think there's three main things. One is further refinement, our core competencies for mountain emergency medicine and rescue. And I think those competencies need to be informed by good epidemiology. So coming up with sort of standard competencies, good training, good simulation, those sorts of things, that's the area one. 
tightening that up a bit. But that leads to area two, which is I think we need standardized core data sets, or I would love to see that where organizations around the world can agree upon what data to be collecting from all of these cases, how to report it, and what the key outcomes and metrics are. That would allow us to compare jurisdictions, it would allow us to test interventions and see their effects and look at change over time. I would just love to see that. And lastly, it's continued public engagement engagement and awareness, taking a public health approach to these problems, which, for example, North Shore Rescue does strongly. They have a huge public um, outreach campaign. But feeding our epidemiology locally and internationally into that public awareness campaign and making it more tailored. So I think those are the three broad areas uh, as outgrowths of this work that I'd love to see. Well, it's great. Well, thank you for your illumination on this. And it's an important article, too, because it's demonstrating that there is a I feel too, I'm a little biased, with the need for mountain emergency medicine and some sort of uniformity. And you may know, Dylan, about the International for Commission for Alpine Rescue, the ICAR. They put out some work, and a lot of it is based in Europe, but there are quite a few of us in North America that are members as well. So yeah, what we're trying to do, folks, is kind of unite some of the ideas that we have throughout the world and unify it so that we can have a good cohesive systematic practice in mountain emergency medicine. So thanks for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me today. Cause up here in Canada, the air's clear, the weather's adequate. We all cheer. We're pretty passionate. And everybody has a pet polar bear and a moose yeah. up here in Canada. Hey folks. Hi. Hello. I'm just chomping on something. And I wanted to ask, how safe are the ocean waters in 2023? And, of course, I've got a mouthful of chips. But that's okay. People will understand what I'm trying to say. Well, just recently, there was this news report came out of Mexico that stated that this fisherman was decapitated by a shark. I think it was a great white shark. And yeah, this was pretty tragic. So it might be a good idea, especially with summer very soon, for us to delve into what to do for someone bit by a shark, provided it isn't a life-threatening hemorrhage, which of course has to be treated first. And while we're at it, we're going to cover some other select non-mammalian vertebrate injuries. Well, I asked for this amazing review article. Doctors Kylie Prentice and Isabel Algacet Gonzalez to talk about what emergency management strategies and antimicrobial considerations for non-mammalian marine vertebrate penetrating trauma whoo, in North America, the Caribbean, and Hawaii, what they wrote about in our <laughs> review article. And we're already having a good time. All right. Tell us what your article covers. I think it's Kylie's turn. Yeah. So our article, like you said, it's a little wordy title, but it covers penetrating trauma. So pretty much answers the question, if someone is in the ocean, gets bit by something, and then comes into your ER, what do you do about it? So it goes over some wound, man wound management strategies. Um, so like you said, first thing would be to control a hemorrhage, but then looking at washout, irrigation, do a wound culture. Um, and then 
what else do we need to know about this? Do we need to do any radiographs, ultrasound? Then we looked at what microbes are at play here and what antibiotics work, what don't. And that's that's pretty much it. We didn't cover freshwater stuff. We didn't cover non-penetrating injuries, so like envenomations. It's pretty much just, like I said, if you get bit by something in the water and you come in, what what can we do for that? Provided that uh, you're in Hawaii or the Caribbean or whatnot, and it's interesting that you limited the geographic locations as well, which is pretty important. About two podcasts ago, I think, we had a French specialist in uh, shark attacks from New Caledonia talk to us about the tiger sharks. And that's a pretty interesting talk. But a lot of the, how should I say, the physical characteristics of a bite by these large animals, they're probably fairly universal Throughout the world, I mean, you get bitten, you can bleed, uh, other soft tissue injury. But the importance, what you're talking about, is probably there may be a geographical difference with saltwater bacteria, marine animal oral flora, and human skin flora is probably going to be the same throughout. But it looks like, yeah, you've looked at some of these species, you looked at some of these geographic locations, and it looks like you've covered Vibrio species pretty well. That seems to be the type of bacteria that you want to treat Vibrio for most of these places. Let me add a little bit about Vibrio. Um, so Vibrio, non-cholera Vibrio, uh, usually lives in the water. Um, and you're going to get three things from it. One is if you ingested either a GI infection you can also get wound infections that can go all the way to necrotizing fasciitis. And then the last one that you can get is uh, septic, like septicemia. The case fatalities for Vibrio are 50% more or higher than primary septicemia. And you, it results in death in 72 hours. So that's why it's so important. Wow. So is there a standard antibiotic regimen for shark bites. And in that case, what is the main infectious agent? Is it Vibrio? And how well do these wounds heal? The answer to that, the short answer is no. (laughs) There's no standard antibiotic. That's what we found. There's no standard. So our review found that people use from like topical antibiotics to one oral agent all the way to two antibiotic IV coverage. Um, it was pretty curious that one case uh, required antifungals. People used from a myriad of cyprosporins, ciprodoxy, metrodinosol. So there's no real consensus right now. And it's just, you know, clinical gestalt, what we're using. In terms of like what they found, um, our articles have, I'm going to read them out because obviously I don't know this by heart. <laughs> but basically okay. cultures from the wounds uh, grew acetinobacter, Bacillus, Staphylococcus, uh, Bacteroides, like it's, it's all over. Vibrio, it grew Vibrio. Some grew Morganella. So it's like all over. And uh, one infection had Pseudomonas. And it seems like the fluoroquinolones seem to cover Vibrio pretty good. So I guess the thing with any type of outing, if you're taking a group out, is if you're the medical provider, have a medical kit that would include broad-spectrum antibiotics because in some of these outings, we're not necessarily near a hospital or anything like that. We might want to at least prophylactically 
take care of some of these injuries. Would you agree with that, Isabel? Well, when I give my my packing talk, <laughs> I say include antibiotics if you're going to be there for a long while. So if you're just going uh, to the beach in and out, you don't need to bring antibiotics. But if you are going to be out for more than a week, definitely. If you're going to be doing anything that's related to water, I would bring fluoroquinolone. Actually, the, the recommendation right now is uh, third gener generation cephalosporin plus doxycycline or equinolone to treat Vibrio. Third gener generation cephalosporin plus doxycycline or equinolone to treat Vibrio. Okay, that's good. It, have you found, you know, these are obviously rare attacks, but have you found that these wounds heal pretty good? Did the literature show that these wounds heal, or is there some delayed healing issues with a lot of these bites? So no, uh, at least from what we found in our study, I think most, right, uh, Kylie, most of them were debrided for shark uh, attacks. So most of the time they went in and they cleaned it up really well. And I'm guessing that also helps a lot with it closing better than just leaving it open to close on its own. But none of them reported like delayed healing, like problems with delayed healing. And all the antibiotics, all the case reports were given prophylactic antibiotics as well. Okay, that's important to know. But nevertheless, despite prophylactic antibiotics, some of these would still go on to become infected because of the deep tissue injuries and all those complicated things. Huh. Now, I'm wearing all my jewelry. I'm wearing my bracelets. I am an Instagram influencer. <laughs> How do I avoid a barracuda bite? <laughs> this is my pet peeve. <laughs> so don't go in the water. <laughs> don't go in the my water. Pet peeve. Good. That's, so, that's let me talk We're to doing. you with a little bit more emotion here. <laughs> so the original article that described uh, this now I don't know folk tale is uh, the original article was describing two women who were attacked by a barracuda who were swimming and they had shiny barrettes. That's how they describe it. I had to look this up. I'm like, what is a barrette? So it's a type of hair accessory. Um, so I don't know. I guess you could say that it looks like a scale. It kind of like the, the shape of a scale. <laughs> yeah, and it's French for barrette. So just to let you know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then um, part of the discussion, like added in that, like a hypothesis that this accessory is shined and it could be seen as a silvery fish that confused maybe the barracuda. And then I, I don't know, it's just taken off and it's like mentioned in books, like a thing not to do, but this is not evidence-based. This is not what they proved. This is just something that they observed. So how to avoid not to be bitten by a barracuda? Well, don't go to the waters, <laughs> but <laughs> if we wanna be practical, right? <laughs> because barracudas are in a lot of places. Remember that they're rare and you have a lower chance uh, to have any injury if you know your surroundings. So you should know if you're going to be swimming in the water with barracuda is that barracudas are ambush predators that hunt mostly at night. So try not to go when the sun is going down. Use common sense. Do not cruise around with bait attached to you. So I, I lived in Puerto Rico most of my life. And most of the attacks that I know about and that I treated in the hospital were fishermen that were just trailing what they caught or bait. And obviously this, this creatures is like, it's like free food, right? It's like you're, you're trailing around 
uh, I don't know, whatever, something that you really like and you're going like, to like go and try and grab it, right? There's some popular folk tales, like say no shiny stuff, which I think, I mean, I'm not gaining anything by having anything shining on. So I can take that off. That's fine. Not harm made to me. Uh, there's some other people that say to stay vertical because it confuses them. Most fish are horizontal, so it makes you look bigger. I don't know if that's also uh, evidence-based. I don't really think so. <laughs> but I think that, you know, common sense, get out of the way. Uh, when I'm diving and I see a barracuda, I just give them the space. If they're coming at me, I move slowly out of the way because no animal, including humans, like sudden movements. <laughs> so you just don't want to provoke an attack. Yeah, that makes sense. And I wonder if the diving wetsuits have any protective effect when you are diving and if you should get, I don't know, a test bite by a shark or barracuda nibble or something like that. Are you either of you aware of anything that substantiates that or we don't really know? I've not. I've not heard that, actually. I've, mm. I have read for stingrays, and that's another thing. Some people that believe in, like, uh, magnetic, like, sort of, I don't know, ma magnetic, like, s small magnets to put, like, in your feet because apparently that deters them. Again, that's not great evidence. Right. So I don't know. I know it works for jellyfish. If you have more than a six millimeter uh, wetsuit, it protects you from the nematocyst because they're small enough. I don't see how uh, that would help in a shark attack. I mean, there's just six millimeters of like not having more of the teeth inside of you, I guess. Well, and I, I had heard that there's a company developing these, or they've already developed these type of wetsuits that you can carry. It's not embedded in the wetsuit, but it's a separate type of device that carries some sort of electromagnetic pulse to repel sharks. But you have to be within a meter. The shark has to be within about a meter of you, which is still pretty close and whatnot. And you have to put several of these devices on you because, you know, a lot of at least adult diving humans are probably going to be longer than a meter long. You know, at any rate, it's, it's kind of interesting, but I don't think we've, you know, found much of a prophylactic way to avoid getting bit. I think we have to be careful, but I do like the idea, don't carry bait around. In the case of moray eels, don't pet the moray eels, don't feed those guys, because that's a pretty bad thing to do as well. For any of these bites, is there a role for hyperbaric oxygen? We found that it was used in one case for each an eel, a catfish, and a stingray. And there were good outcomes for those. But again, there's a lack of literature about this. Um, I think the jury's still out. I mean, we don't even know still if we should use prophylactic, prophylactic antibiotics or not. So I, I don't think we're there. <laughs> Yeah, and there's not a lot of people signing up for IRB studies to be the volunteers for any of these bites. So, yeah, I think it's going to be based on things like your review. Would you have any pre-hospital treatment advice for stingray or lionfish, scorpionfish and venomation? And, you know, how reliable, and you alluded to this a little bit in the review article, how reliable is imaging for a potentially embedded stingray barb? So 
pre-hospital treatment advice, this is going to be hot water immersion. So um, whichever extremity has been affected by stingray, lionfish, scorpionfish, you submerge in hot water of 42 to 45 degrees Celsius. This is about a little bit hotter than a hot tub. Um, for 30 to 90 minutes was what some other authors um, defined it as. And this kind of helps, it helps reduce the pain and the wound complications we found. So really important. Some people didn't need any pain medications because they had the hot water immersion. So I think that's the best pre-hospital intervention to just make people feel better. Some of the only good or better evidence are like control studies that True. we have done in this type of marine um, bites and stings. So, so this is the only thing that's controlled and that we have proven that it's better if you dunk it or like immerse it in hot water. Well, suppose you don't have hot water. Uh, does urine work? Are we, <laughs> are we confusing <laughs> this here with jellyfishes, <laughs> which is also not just, been just had to ask because I've been asked this. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so it's been not proven to work in any of them both, <laughs> in, like invertebrates or invertebrates. Uh, stop peeing on people. It does not work. <laughs> All right. All right. And then what about imaging? How do you feel about imaging? Are x-rays sufficient to look for a stingray barb or some embedded teeth? What do you all think about that? Yeah, I think we would definitely recommend at least an x-ray. That's helped catch a lot of retained spines and teeth. Interestingly, we found that some, some things still got left in the wound, and these could have been found with ultrasound. So there's one part of, it's called the integumentary sheath, which um, kind of houses the venom for a stingray barb. And this can be radiolucent. So bedside ultrasound would be preferred in these cases. But we don't have really numbers to like for sensitivity for this kind of stuff. Yeah, there's no group evidence. So basically it's going to be clinical to start versus risk, risk and benefit, right? So experts are pretty safe. Um, they have a little radiation. We try not to radiate everyone, but ultrasounds doesn't even have radiation. So why not? So I wonder if that'd be an interesting thing to carry a handheld POCUS type of ultrasound on a diving expedition or something like that. I just want to like, just add every, every time that I talk about uh, this sort of like, um, things and uh, attacks from animals just remember that they are very rare and for example for sharks there was only uh, 108 shark attacks worldwide in 2022 and 32 of them were provoked meaning these were people that were somehow engaging or handling the sharks there were only five fatalities and only one was in the u.s so that's why we're having this conversation. We're having this conversation because we can't do experiments because there's there's not enough <laughs> bites. So we shouldn't be scared of going into the sea. Like you have a better chance of dying, crossing the street, getting into your car. Um, so there's there's no reason to not enjoy the nature and the water. Yeah, and I think the bottom line is do not read Wikipedia, folks. Because it starts by saying, despite their rarity, many people fear shark attacks after occasional serial attacks. But they're talking about the Jersey Shore shark attacks of 1916. Wow. I mean, come on. Come on, man. Come on, man. What are we talking about? 
Jaws. <laughs> we talk about Jaws. Yeah. And then there's some other smaller diving type of movies that talk about these shark attacks. But I think it makes for really good ticket sales. But that's about it. I have to agree with you, Isabel, on that. <laughs> That'll do it for this edition of the Wilderness Medicine Podcast. This is a production of El Severe, so be sure to fill out the CME questions. Be safe, get educated, and have fun outside. And please contact us for further questions, and until next time.